Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Monday, July 25th, 2022. I'm John Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Christine Rosen is out today. So joining us, host of the Reeducation Podcast, longtime commentary contributor, and all-around sage Eli Lake. Hi, Eli. <laughs> Thank you, J-Pod. You do I get like are, a seven? Do I get the? These are like the seven time host uh, awards for Saturday Night Live. You yeah, know, like yeah, they, yeah. We have a jacket. Yeah, we <laughs> yeah, have right. a Jacket and everything. I just want to start out by saying that today's podcast is brought to you by Dan Senor's podcast, "Call Me Back," and I'm I'm excited to tell you guys today that you guys really need to subscribe and listen to his last two podcasts. Um, the the one that has just been released. Uh, uh, James Forsyth, the political editor of The Spectator magazine, offers a really brilliant guide to what is going on in the Tory race for prime minister. Uh, it is I found it incredibly illuminating. Uh, what people don't really understand is that uh, the race is now down to two people chosen essentially by the parliamentary party. That's Rishi Sunak, the chancellor of the Exchequer, and Liz Truss, who is the foreign secretary. And uh, that's it. And the members of the Tory party get to vote, hundreds of thousands of them get to vote uh, over the course of a month on who gets to be prime minister. And the minute that vote is tallied, that person becomes prime minister. The no if Sandra butts, that's it. That person is in. And uh, and uh, it it is a fascinating situation because Rishi Sunak, who is a much more distinguished politician than Liz Truss, is apparently way behind in according to polling. And if he doesn't turn it around in the next week, this that may be curtains for him. Anyway, it's incredibly illuminating, as was the previous one that I also want to commend to you with Muhammad Al-Aryan, um, the uh, guy who ran uh, helped run PIMCO, the largest hedge fund in the world. And uh, and, uh, you know, with various other president of Queens College at Cambridge, um, you want to know about inflation, you want to know why. There is probably isn't going to be a soft landing uh, in the recession. You want to know what is going on in the world. You got to listen to Dan's conversation with Muhammad el Arain. And of course, the one prior to that was with our own Noah Rothman. So that's Dan Senor's Call Me Back podcast, um, really hitting its stride, uh, essential listening. Go to Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you get your fine podcasts and listen today. Um, guys, I don't know if you know this, but it's hot. It's really hot. And uh, it's hot all over America. And uh, according to the National Weather Service, when you have temperatures like this, it is, quote, oppressive, unquote. Um, that's why we have a National Weather Service is to assign adjectives uh, to explain what it means that a lot of the country uh, at the end of July is buried in 85 post, uh, you know, uh, 85 and up um, Fahrenheit temperatures. And then, of course, uh, England saw, uh, Britain saw, you know, it's highest temperatures on record. They were sort of in the hundreds. And of course, they're in the North Sea. So it's really hot. It's hot in Europe. It's really hot in the Northern Hemisphere. So apparently it's going to stop being hot tomorrow. And of course, you know what this means. Oh, by the way, it's so it's hot. And you know what's happening? Fires. So apparently when it gets really hot, there are fires. I don't really understand. Maybe somebody can explain to me the relationship between it being hot and fires. I'm a little confused. Does God hold up a is God holding up a, a um 
uh, a magnifying glass so that when the sun's rays penetrate it and it hits a house, the house goes up in flames. Ordinarily, you hear about fires in the winter when people who are too cold do things like set fires in their homes and the flues are closed and they whatever, you know, because they're using actual firewood and things to keep themselves warm. Uh, so I'm a little uh, confused about that. I'm also confused about how, uh, according to CNN International, it may be that um, uh, there's been a lot of attention on shark attacks this summer, as opposed to other summers when there hasn't been any attention whatsoever given to shark attacks. I mean, it's not like we've never heard every summer about shark attacks. Apparently, climate change. Climate change may be responsible for shark attacks. So what we have here is the classic, really since 1987, it gets hot out, and this is time for the propagandists to come out and say that it's hot because of global warming and uh, or climate change, and we have to do something. It's here. It's here. The emergency is here. It's come so much faster, it's really hot. So I'm going to give you one detail, and then we can all have this conversation, which is that I heard on NPR, they said this. They said, Boston, so hot in Boston that Boston broke a record for heat set in 1933. You know what that tells me? It was hot like this in 1933 when Boston had a heat wave and it was hot as hot as this in 1933, which kind of gives the lie to the idea that it's now hot in a way that it's never been hot before. Um, guys, I, I don't want to be dismissive of the idea that there's man-made climate change and all this, but every time I read this kind of thing, it just makes my bullshit detector go off like like klaxon five alarm bells eli what do you what do you think i think that the way to think about the commentary and the um the sort of uh the causation attributed to climate change because of the weather and it's also extreme weather events when we see that lots of hurricanes or something like that and it's always this is why we need to do something about climate change how is that different than pat robertson after 9 11 saying that we got this terrible terrorist attack because of pornography and sin in America. It's the same kind of thing. Um, and climate change is, I'm not trying to denigrate, by the way, Pius, I'm, I'm not, this is not an anti-religion at Christopher Hitchens point. It's just to simply say that the similarities between the people who, who are insistent on climate change is very similar to the people that they would denigrate as being these unsophisticated kind of fundamentalist types. It's like anything that happens, you have an explanation for it, and it always goes back to the same thing. Um, it's the deus ec, ec, ec machina, as they say. Well, it, there's also a connection there because, of course, this is we're being punished, right? Right, exactly. And we are being punished for our exactly. sin. It is biblical prophecy. It's Jeremiah or something like that. We are bad. We are Gilgamesh. sinful. We are idol worshipers. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, no, I'm saying it goes back to, to Gilgamesh. I mean, it's... it's yeah. And it's and it's a similar tendency and it plays on this part of our brain, whereas there is an intelligent, it seems, point that we can all recognize there is man-made climate change. Um, there are there are mitigation things we can do. We can come up with alternative energies. We can make electric cars. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff that exists that's like not as apocalyptic, but it almost has to be apocalyptic because climate change is a new religion for people who have given up old religion. Um, there is one difference which is that uh, the 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 sort of religious fervor behind uh, climate change, they they the people who feel that way, they point to scientific institutions 
and say, well, this the, we have uh, this group on board, this organization on board. Their new report says this. Their 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 new study shows that. Um, what's interesting to me about that is that we are living in a moment um, during which we're we're finding out that a lot of science is not quite as settled as as we thought. Um, very recently, I mean, there was this report. Uh, this big study that came out uh, of, of UK last week that, and I, I, I take no position on any of these, I'm just, just reporting some, that um, uh, serotonin is not linked to depression. Uh, there's uh, uh, some study that, that just came out a few days ago that, talking about how um, decades of Alzheimer's research has, has, has been wrongheaded. And I just read this morning, something coming out of Yale saying that evolution is more predictable than we'd thought, that, that uh, uh, genetic mutation may not be as random as we thought. The point is, th there has been so many institutions that have, in, in which people have begun to lose faith and their credibility has eroded. After how long, how many, how, how long have, 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 have the, the, has the climate change universe been telling us we have 10 years, we have five years, we have a dozen years um, and, and gotten their predictions wrong time and again. Um, will the dam burst on this? Well, okay, but I just wanna ask Noah something. So yeah. this connects to the experts and the crisis in expertise, right? So um, we, we understand that, uh, we talked about this last week, that Los Angeles is about to reinstate a COVID uh, indoor and outdoor COVID mask mandate because of the uh, Omicron uh, B5 surge. And um, here's what's interesting. So it turns out that they, they have been almost deliberately using false data. They've been using hospitalization data to claim that we have, we're at a new high and it's really dangerous, right? And then it turns out that what they've been doing, and they acknowledge this in some meeting on some, you know, Zoom that somebody captured then released, is that 10% um, of the patients who are coming in to be hospitalized are being hospitalized because of COVID. What they do when someone comes into the hospital to be hospitalized is give them a COVID test. And then 90% of those who are being, according to uh, this, this revelation in LA County that are coming in, uh, that are testing positive for COVID are not coming into the hospital because of COVID. They're coming in for the reasons that everybody goes into the hospital. Everybody is getting this. If they and 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 so there's been a surge in case number. There hasn't been a surge in hospitalizations, and there has been a minor surge in deaths. But again, given what we're hearing and seeing, I'm not so sure that we should entirely accept the death toll numbers as being from COVID. Because if the if LA County and other places are are putting COVID hospitalization numbers wildly high because people are are coming to the hospital for other reasons with COVID. There also might be people who are dying with COVID who are dying from other conditions and the deaths are being attributed to COVID. I only bring this up to say that this is all of a piece with this question of people who say we need to listen to the science and the science, or at least the social science aspect of science and the, and the sort of the um, macro science uh, is very much in question in general 
all over the place about the issues that we care about the most. Yeah, I think that dovetails really well with the conversation about fires and climate change. I think they're confusing their terms and deliberately attempting to change the nature of the debate. And we shouldn't do that, too. So a most charitable interpretation of this link. And I think we're just basically talking about London here because London had a like 1600 fires during these two, three consecutive 40 degree days. Um, and it's not as though the buildings were spontaneously combusting, uh, but the dry weather does dry out vegetation, does increase wildfires, does tie up first responders. So the reason why they had you know several blocks go up isn't because climate change is making these buildings spontaneously combust, but the first responders are engaged elsewhere. Um, that seems to me to be the likeliest, most charitable explanation. There's not really much of a policy element to it, save maybe having some more firefighters. Uh, nevertheless, there's a coupling there that you can make the link if, you, uh, if you're inclined towards. Uh, maybe it's not a very firm one, but it is a link. And you can very similarly uh, with this COVID, uh, the notion here that Los Angeles County and Los Angeles County alone is experiencing this profound explosion in hospitalizations and deaths due to COVID, even though this particular variant is the most contagious variant, it's the most dominant strain, the president has it, it's everywhere. Um, the idea that this is localized to uh, Los Angeles uh, stretches credulity. Um, and it's clearly designed to have a policy outcome, to motivate people into accepting the return, the restoration of mitigation measures um, through manipulating data. But just because they're doing it doesn't mean we should do it. So we should be as, as clear as possible that we don't have the actual data when it comes to the COVID, uh, COVID numbers in Los Angeles or elsewhere that are resulting in hospitalizations because they're fudging the numbers, uh, which means you don't have it either. Same with this heat problem. I mean, there's a lot of ambiguity here that I think we should probably just allow for the prospect that we don't we don't have all the information necessary to make up a, a policy recommendation that could affect change that activists want to see and that we want to see. I mean, look, that's a that's a vital point, and it goes to everything that we're talking about here, which is we don't know. And and there is an absolute religious certainty that climate change is responsible for heat waves in the summer. And that, I'm sorry, is preposterous. It is preposterous because the notion that we know what the temperature of the earth was in 1748, it, we don't. Well, we, we don't do know. know that the East River used to freeze over every year and you could walk from lower Manhattan to Brooklyn. Uh, the the Hudson River, which is a mile and a half wide, freezes over in the winter. I mean, I, I'm just saying, like, I, I, it does. I mean, it may not freeze over to the extent that, yeah, look, I'm not saying that there isn't man-made climate change or that the planet isn't, isn't getting, you know, marginally warmer. I'm not, I, I'm really not. I'm just saying that we are, we, is very hard to have an honest conversation about this stuff because advocates and adherents to a specific uh, idea are willing to use any tool at hand to advance their case, whether that whether it's true or not, because it's ultimately it's true even if the fact is false in their eyes, right? Well, it's fake but accurate. A lot of these claims are are unfalsifiable. Um, for example, the, the 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 climate change activists also 
go on the offensive in the winter. Um, if it's a very brutal winter, yeah, they say, oh, this is this is um, this is we're going to see more and more extreme winters um, due to climate change. Okay. But that's literally why the term climate change came into being, right? It was global warming. We never heard the term climate change until 15 years into the into the climate emergency. They changed the term because people were questioning the veracity of the idea that the problem was warming and then they just went with violent weather as as their as their uh, guidepost. Go ahead. I but here's here's the real giveaway. If it's a mild winter, the same people say we're going to see fewer cold winter days because of climate change. Right. So as they I say, either way. Un- yeah, I mean, look, um, you know, every morning Jews every actually not just every morning, but um, the most important prayer in the Jewish liturgy is the Shema. Hero Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. And the second paragraph of the Shema or the third paragraph um, is a highly problematic one from the contemporary pers- from the contemporary moral perspective, right? Because it says, "If you will diligently obey my commandments, which I enjoin upon you this day, to love the Lord your God and to serve Him with all your heart and with all your soul, I will give rain for your land at the proper time, the early rain and the late rain, and you will gather in your grain, your wine, and your oil. I will give you grass in your fields for your cattle. You will eat and be sated." Take care lest your heart be lured away and you turn astray and worship alien gods and bow down to them. For then the Lord's wrath will flare up against you and he will close the heavens so that there will be no rain and the earth will not yield its produce and you will swiftly perish from the good land which the Lord gives you. So, you know, theologians, Jewish theologians have been dealing with the question of man's direct responsibility for the suffering that he has to go through because of climate, right? This is a, and this is something that's gone on. You mentioned Pat Robertson uh, earlier, you know, and the idea that we were somehow being punished for our uh, sins. Right. And this, of mm-hmm. course, is, is is a direct idea out of the Old Testament that we get that you know the the Jewish people are 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 thrown out of their lands and forced into exile and forced into slavery because they're bad and they deserve what they're getting because they turned away from God and are idol worshipers. And if you, if you start down this path, one of the reasons that this is so difficult for, for, you know, serious theologians is then people are responsible if they die in the Holocaust or people are responsible if they are, you know, if, if they are victims of a, right. And by the way, the inverse of that leads to a really simplistic and stupid version of atheism. Right. Like so God can't exist because there was a Holocaust. I mean, there's a lot of it's, it's a much right. more complicated. Question. Right. But I'm only bringing this up to say yeah. that, you know, if you go down this path, which is we people are summoning, you know, evil upon ourselves and we are going to suffer and we'll deserve it. Um, you are, you know, you get to this weird cultural thing where. You- Human beings are are the problem. Human yeah, and you can beings. hear it. You can hear the the difference. I think Eli, you and I were talking about this yeah. a couple of weeks ago. That you can hear the difference between you know in in the tone of the activism between reform reform minded, uh, you know, conscientious activism and misanthropy, and it's sort of hard to define those terms, but you know it when you hear it. I, I can I just add one other thing? We've known now for some time. I mean, Greg Easterbrook's book 
the moment on earth is now what 27 years old so there's a lot of trends that have gotten a lot better in terms of the environment and they keep getting better um cars pollute less and especially in europe and america uh we we you know we can produce solar panels more cheaply now although they're going to be made in china um and there's a whole bunch of these things that would be sort of cause for maybe good news or some sort of optimism but we can't allow it because climate change and the client and climatism or whatever you want to call it has become this new kind of religion right and you can't you can't say that the market is the remedy for it right and the then it gets to this to the right and then the market is the cause of it right and then it gets i mean to tie it back to COVID, and it gets to this thing that i think frustrates all the new normies which is there's a sense among an expert class that yes it's true that yeah you know this wuhan lab probably may have been the cause of the uh, initial outbreak but uh if we acknowledge that then woo boy you know people are going to start blaming china and there's going to be a, all this other thing so even though we sort of know that to be the case or that it looks like you know covid may have been you know originally man-made or something like that we better not say anything even though it's possible it's it, even though it, it looks like you know it's it's only you know as hot as since 1933 we have to say it's the hottest year and and really hype it up because if we don't then people might lose you know let you know lose sight of the fact that we have a climate emergency and they won't support these other things that we need to do to save the planet and that's the, the mentality where experts who know better are put twist themselves in a pretzel to lie to the public because they don't think the public can handle the truth and that's why we're having a real problem in this country right now, which is a crisis of authority and legitimacy of these institutions, which the public has to trust for the complex world that we live in to function properly. So I was at the theater yesterday, Broadway theater matinee, su Sunday matinee of uh, the revival of company. And there's an announcement made just before the curtain went up, uh, made by Patti Lapone, the star of company. And she says, Welcome to the theater. Please unwrap your candy, you know, turn off your phones. And uh, to protect the unmasked troopers in the show, we hot, strongly request that uh, you uh, remain or put your masks on and put them over your nose and keep your masks on through the duration of the show. And the audience erupts in applause. Now, I only bring this up. I mean, it's not the whole audience, but it's enough of the audience. I only bring this up to say that if you follow what has been going on in a relatively granular fashion over the last three months, let's not even say the last year and a half, but over the last three months, you would know of a certainty that there is absolutely no reason to wear a mask in that theater. First of all, if you're going to get it, you're going to get it. Second of all, if you're going to get it, you're probably lucky to get it. According to the New York Times, according to uh, uh, David Wallace Wells in the New York Times, um, according to a viral epidemiologist in Texas, I believe, 95 to 98% of people either have COVID, had COVID, have been exposed to COVID, or have been vaccinated or double vaccinated or boosted which means that we are we are we are approaching herd immunity except that we're not immune we're not really immune what we know is that we are much more protected against the ravages of covid either because 
we have these antibodies in our system or because the variant that is now stronger, that that is now dominant is much weaker and can and hurts less and all of that. And we know that masking does not help. If anything, the only mask that can possibly help is a, is a KN or NK, whatever it is, 95. It's the only mask that can help. No one is wearing them, by the way. I mean, you know, if you look at people who are masking, one or two people out of 20 are, are wearing the one mask that really can sort of like bar your efflorescence from coming out at other people or keep you from breathing it in from other people. In any case, so why were all these people applauding? Well, maybe they don't know. Maybe they don't know. They don't know. They don't follow. And they, or this has now become a, this is like, you applaud when they talk about people masking. The, the applause has a defiant and angry quality to it. Like what you are doing is, I refuse to accept the validity of the Dobbs decision and I am going to have my mask on. It's totally I, tribal. It, it's, right. it's, it signals which tribe you're in. <clears throat> I mean, literally with your tribal mask. Um, wow. Good. I mean, yeah. at, at, but as you say, John, everyone gets it anyway. Um, everyone and they I, should. Yeah. And they should. That's the point. If this is a weak variant, you are better off getting it and getting whatever benefit there is from your body fighting it and having the antibodies in your system then you are not getting it unless you have significant and really life-threatening comorbidities. And I'm sorry, but most people don't have those. It's just the fact of the matter that most people don't have those serious comorbidities. And I was at that theater and there wasn't anybody over the age of 85 in the theater. So the two causes, which are comorbidities and extreme old age, that are really threatening. And I'll tell you another thing. My father, who was 92 and a half, got it two weeks ago. He was really sick. I mean, he felt terrible. Took Paxlovid. Didn't make him feel better, but he was over it in a week. It's been two He'd never got it before. He didn't get the earlier. You know, he's very old. Um, and and it, it sucked. And it stank. But it wasn't threatening his life. And if it wasn't threatening his life at 92 and a half, Every person who hasn't gotten COVID yet should be taken off a mask the way when I was a kid, uh, they, my parents put my sisters in a room with me when I had mumps as a baby so that they would catch it before there was an MMR vaccine because you wanted your kids to get mumps before they hit puberty so that they would have antibodies against mumps and wouldn't end up sterile later on in life. That is exactly where we are now. And people are now doing whatever they can not to catch the thing that will be, will be better for them and society if they all got. Here's the other thing. COVID is here to stay. It's going to go around around the globe. It's going to mutate. It's going it, it, to it's, it's do what it's been doing for the past uh, two plus years. If we, don't, if, we, if we keep the masks on now, then we'll keep them on forever True. because that that is that is how long for the rest of our lives. COVID will be a reality. So what are we doing? It's a very good question. And uh, you know what else? Uh, let me let me just uh, step back for a second and talk to you about a new advertiser 
we have a new advertiser, ClickUp. Imagine having one extra day every week, more time to cook healthy meals, work on that novel, or just binge some good reality TV. Now it's all possible with ClickUp, the productivity platform that'll save you one day a week on work guaranteed. ClickUp began with the premise that productivity is broken. There were too many tools to keep track of, too many things in entirely separate ecosystems. There had to be a more productive way to get through the daily hustle. ClickUp is the one tool to house all your tasks, projects, goals, spreadsheets, and more. ClickUp is built for teams from one to 1,000 and more. It's packed with features and customization options that no other productivity tool has, so you can work the way you work best. Whether you're in project management, engineering, sales, marketing, or HR, ClickUp has easy-to-use solutions that create a more efficient work environment. Join the more than 800,000 highly productive teams using ClickUp today. So use code COMMENTARY to get 15% off ClickUp's massive unlimited plan for a year, meaning you can start reclaiming your time for over for under $5 a month. Sign up today at ClickUp.com and use code COMMENTARY. Hurry, this offer ends soon. And we're about to talk about how uh, we're about to get massive amounts of economic, macroeconomic information and corporate information, all of this this week, which means it is time for you to go to Amazon, Barnes & Noble, whatever, and get yourself your copy of David Bonson's There's No Free Lunch, 250 Economic Truths. Because at this moment, when we are facing an unprecedented series of economic complications, this book that brings you back to the basics, the basic ideas of, of, of economics uh, in a daily primer style, that affords you an understanding of each important notion that all together constructs our very our, our idea of what the economy is, combining human flourishing, uh, ideas about faith, freedom, liberty, and what we do to make our lives better with the earnings and the money that we have. That's what you get out of There's No Free Lunch. David Bonson, B-A-H-N-S-E-N, runs a uh, a firm, uh, an eponymous firm uh, that has $3.5 billion under management. So he knows where if he speaks, people trust him to invest their money, and you should trust him to provide you with an education in macroeconomics that is second to none. So that's David Bonson's book, There's No Free Lunch, 250 Economic Truths, get it today. Noah, as I said, we're talking about how we're about to get a lot of a lot of stuff uh, coming out this week. Uh, uh, and the Fed is meeting uh, to discuss the inevitable interest rate increase. The only question is how big, how startlingly big it might be. And we're going to get earnings from Meta and Google and various other things that will also indicate where the economy is and whether we are on a down, whether we really have hit the downward slope. Larry Summers went on TV yesterday and said, just as Muhammad El Aryan said on Dan Senor's podcast, we are going into recession and we ain't going to have no soft landing. This is going to be a hard road down. Uh, and what is the White House doing, Noah? Well, they're reinventing the, the definition of what a recession is. Uh, so, yeah, and I was actually having this, Jim Garrity has a piece in National Review that's good on this, was talking about what Janet Yellen was saying, for example, on the TV uh, today, and Brian Deese is saying the same thing. And it's not, recession is not two consecutive quarters of negative growth, which is the definition that we've been using for the last half century, I think. Um, it's a colloquial def definition, but nevertheless, unquestioned. 
Now it's this complex cocktail of uh, economic indicators that uh, include GDP, but include a lot of other things like you know uh, consumer confidence and earnings, as you say, and productivity. So by that definition, the National uh, Bureau of Economic Research, I think it is, um, NBER, yeah, National Bureau of Economic Research. So their, their definition is not going to suggest that we're in recession. By the way, in recession, not going into recession. This is backward looking. So when we get GDP and the Atlanta Fed thinks it'll be negative again, that means we'll have been in recession for the better part of several months or perhaps the entire quarter, um, which is what they should be saying. I mean, Brian Dees is on TV now say, put, touting this line. It's not technically a recession, um, which is going to only complicate and compound the political problems associated with governing in hard economic times. Um, defining our terms is all well and good, but if it sounds like you're trying to argue people out of their own unenviable experience, it, it's going to paint you as completely out of touch, first of all, a little callous, second of all, and definitely not going to give you any credit uh, when it comes to the, you know, econ the good parts of the economy that they want to claim credit for, like the ridiculous amount of open jobs that there are. This is one of the better job markets in history. Uh, so I was having this conversation over the weekend with somebody. It gives you some idea of the esoteric conversations I have over the weekend. But the general gist of it was, well, yeah, I mean, the it's a very complex economic situation. And we, you know, it's it's sending us a lot of competing signals and it's hard to pin down. It's not hard to pin down. Inflation is killing us. Inflation has robbed you of your purchasing power. And to try to argue against that is to paint yourself as, uh, as just someone who's living in the clouds, who doesn't have their finger on the American pulse. I mean, look, the, the danger here is that, you know, you can, inflation results, I mean, we're in a very weird situation because of the pandemic and the results of the pandemic and the, the shutting down of the world economy and then it's restarting and the fact that people were flooded with dollars that they then used to buy goods that were hard to manufacture and then hard to transport and all of that, and that we're dealing with the overhang of that. But inflation is, is part of the cost of having an economy that is chugging along and then creates this situation in which people have a lot of money and they're chasing goods around and that increases the cost of goods, which simultaneously increases the cost of wages since uh, goods need to be manufactured by people who are for whom uh, the private sector is competing for a workforce and all of that. And so managing an economy so that it does not, and not that you can really manage an economy, but this is the idea, managing an economy so that it does not achieve the overheating that leads to stagflation is the purpose of central economic policy. You can't then, manage the economy. You can manage the money supply. Right. It's but monetary what I, policy. Right. But what you then get is this problem. I mean, what's happened is that something that took seven or eight years in the 70s to happen, uh, which is a combination of stag stagflation and slowing growth and massive increases in interest rates, to deal with everything at the same time has happened in a very compressed period of like two years as opposed to seven or eight years. Except except in the 70s, stagflation was high in employment and inflation. And we right. have 
high. Right. We have low unemployment and inflation, which is a little well, that right. So every situation right. is different. That's why this is so confusing. Although you can understand how, right? So, so the the circumstances that we face are in a tight labor market. It's incredibly hard to bring inflation down. For sure, that's absolutely right. I mean, because you got to pay workers, even if the economy slows down. Uh, there is still this, you know, anyway, we're in a this very is back to the expertise problem because yes. the administration doesn't feel like it can play it straight. doesn't feel like it can explain this very complicated problem to you in terms you'll understand. So they're but just they don't believe in their terms. But I don't think that they. So, again, we, we get to our we get to our constant long running battle over whether or not they, they believe, believe what we believe. <laughs> they think what we think and are being cynical or controlling or whether in fact they have a different set of priors and ideas and that they remain tempted by these fantasies like modern monetary policy that suggests that there are no consequences to violating and breaking the rules that were have been in play that are sort of like talking about how two plus two equals four if you can then as long as they know two plus two can equal five under certain circumstances i don't know that they don't really believe that and they well, do I have think, this. Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. I think they're lying about this one. Yeah, I think they're I think they know they're lying about this one. I agree with you on other other issues. They are wedded to bad ideas that they think are, are true and right. Um, I think they they got caught completely flat footed here and there and they're and they're and they're, as Noah says, redefining understood, accepted terms. Previously understood terms. Yeah, this yeah. is this is textbook spin. It's not wrong. It's just spinning the facts in order to get away from the conclusion they don't want you to arrive at. So it's not necessarily lying per se, but it is being selective about the interpretation of the information that you have available in order to draw, get people to arrive at your preferred conclusion, mostly the press. I mean, this is, there's this, they're, you know, playing the, the uh, playing the press and trying to see how they can string them along to regurgitate their new definition of what a recession is. And they'll probably be successful in that regard, but it's to their detriment because Americans know what the economy is like. They experience it on a daily basis. You attempt to argue them out of the idea that productivity is declining. And for example, gasoline is declining. The price of gasoline is declining because of demand, not because we've somehow discovered new supply. Um, all this stuff registers on an instinctual level. And to try to argue someone out of that is a, a fool's errand and uh, will have a lot of negative consequences for the administration and the media if they go along with this. Can I, can I ask a, a kind of question comparing to the 70s to the moment that we're in right now, which is that from the if, you, if this was like 1975 or 1976, not only was it looked like we were going to have democratic rule for the foreseeable future because of after Watergate, but because of Nixon's policies, the mainstream of the Republican Party on these questions of the attempted management of the economy, which were the management of the money supply, was really not that different from what Democrats were saying. There was still, I mean, Nixon in many ways was a was you know very much of a kind of we are all Keynesians now. That's exactly what said. Yeah. right. Now, the reason we called the Reagan Revolution was because Reagan really did offer a choice, and voters went with Reagan. Obviously, do we have that now? Is the Republican Party in a position to say we will? I mean, I know that that's what they're saying in messaging, but does the Republican Party really, after Trump, represent we're going to do things very differently? We have a very different philosophy about how the economy works in this country. And if you vote for us, we're going to get it back on track. 
Yes, because I think there are two things okay. that remain a, a, a critical distinction. By the way, uh, Nixon said we're all Keynesians now, but in doing so, he, he had violated wage and price controls. I mean, he was like a. I know, but yeah. but but there was a commonsensical thing in the Republican consciousness that was always differed in those days from, you know, from, from democratic ideas, which was, it was the party of small businessmen. Right. And small businessmen had to balance their checkbooks and live within their means, get a little profit. Uh, budget, the balanced budget, the green eye shade, that was the Republican religion. And the Democratic religion was the hell with it. Whatever. We'll do it. You know, it's Keynesianism. We'll do whatever. Right. And Reagan then represented a weird amalgam of the two because he said, yes, we need to balance the budget, but we need to grow the economy and we need to release the productive energy of the American people. And we need government to stop taking 70% of the top earners money. So we're going to cut taxes and that is going to actually increase the budget deficit. And that was a real, but that was a real sea change. Yeah. Although that was Kennedy's policy. Supply sure. side was John F. Kennedy's tax policy. But my point is that there nothing is ever static. And the one thing that is different now about Republicans from Democrats, two things. One, Republicans are deregulatory. Republicans right. say government you can't you should not be using the levers of government to control to use you know regulation to control the private economy that is self-destructive and foolish and inefficient and all of that and what we will do is deregulate that is something on which i think a hundred percent of republicans agree or 95 percent. no right no. Okay. No, no. If you <laughs> want to talk about our friends at Compact. Yeah, the- no, but this is a very real thing, John, because the, the, the anti-market consensus on uh, at the grassroots level is not reflected by policymakers, by influential Republicans who cater to this base, but govern very differently. Uh, and they will invite a backlash because there is a there is an, a, a regulate a pro-regulatory approach that is gaining steam on the right. It's mostly yeah, punitive. It's- it has little yeah. to do with economics. It has everything to do with punishing the right people. Okay. There's an but, anti-market consensus, an anti-growth consensus. But these uh, are they, not, but these are not, I'm talking about Republican qua Republican voters. Like these people may implicitly be Republican voters, but they are, they are radicals. And they're yes, the loudest they want, voices in the room. But they don't want to regulate the way Democrats want to regulate. That it, it's entirely different. They don't want to regulate to help. Yeah. They want to regulate carbon. passionately. Yeah. No, they want to regulate to, whatever. It doesn't matter. But they don't want your kids getting like sex education classes or something. No, but I mean, let's say even economically, social media outlets. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Amazon. They're deregulated. They they really do believe that there's an anti-worker policy when it comes to pro-growth market oriented policies. I know. uh, Okay. All right. Okay. So 80 percent of Republicans. Okay. So let's say 80 percent of Republicans. And then so you have the deregulatory aspect and then you have the thing. Then you have the anti-administrative state aspect which is connected, right? Because the administrative state is what lays out the regulations that have the force of law without actually ever having been voted on by legislatures. Right. And that has to be stopped. That is that is the one place where Democrats and Republicans really, really, really disagree. Uh, and I think ordinary Republicans, not 
not natcons, but ordinary Republicans feel the same way. It's like, why aren't we getting more gas out of the ground? I mean, you know, why aren't we getting this stuff out of the ground? Why can't we do that? Why, why do I, you know, have to fill out this paperwork if I just want to have a paper route, you know, or right, my son right. has a paper, whatever. I don't want to do that. This is ridiculous. I, why am I, why do I need a special license to open a nail salon? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Or right. why do I have to fill out a form that says what race I am when I'm, you know, like going into the DMV, like, you know, however yeah. it is, they, it's overregulation. Okay. So that, that's, that's what I would say there is the, is the profound <clears throat> difference. And that ultimately that was what made Trump a conventional Republican is that when he approached economic policy, what did he do? He cut taxes and he cut regulations. That's what he was as president. That was his domestic accomplishment as president. So, so there is here a potential interesting difference in Trump and DeSantis. Um, and I say only potential because it's not, I don't know that DeSantis has said anything along these lines, but uh, John, as you say, Trump has been, uh, you know, Trump, Trump was about roll, was rolling back regulation. Um, the NatCons that we're talking about who, who have this anti-corporate position, they do have DeSantis's ear. Um, that's, that's, that's just true. Uh, to what extent? Well, I, we don't know. Um, uh, so if he's if might this be something that he would use to to distinguish himself from Trump in the future? I don't know. Absolutely. In much the same way that the woke progressive, while difficult to quantify, represents a very small, narrow band of opinion on the progressive left to say nothing of Democrats. But they punch way, way, way above their weight. Uh, you could say the very same thing about the anti-market conservatives who probably don't number if you can actually quantify them, it's probably a reasonably small number of Republican voters. But absolutely, they're the loudest voices in the room, and they command a lot of attention from um, politicians, especially office seekers on a national level, because they punch above their weight. They're they're uh, they make their voices heard above the 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 din of what uh, Eli calls the new normies, who who are reasonably can be expected to be quiet about things. I mean, this is the silent majority for a reason. Okay, see, I, I, I certainly will never discount the importance of a small band of intellectuals being <laughs> incredibly influential and world changing. Okay, but in the case of DeSantis, what he wants to do is fight the cultural advantages of woke progressives with the powers of government to some extent. But even those have a deregulatory aspect to them. By which I mean, when he goes to war with Disney, right? When he decides that he's right. going to have this war with Disney, what what is the what does the war consist of? It consists of the removal of a form of corporate welfare that was assigned to Disney, where it got the right to manage this territory around Disney World. It gave it sort of the powers of governance over this area in Disney World. Now, uh, that where Disney World is situated, uh, this improvement district, this tax, whatever they call it. Now, doing so is a form of, you know, like war against uh, corporations. But A, it's, argue it's very arguable. Like, nobody really likes the sound of it once you hear it, that Disney gets to kind of, like, write its own rules. 
when nobody else gets to, you know, you, you have to go to your housing, your, your HOA in order to paint your house a certain color, but Disney can basically levy, you know, can like build roads without, without any kind of rules or whatever. And then, uh, you know, he is saying, you, you know, nobody thinks that you deregulate the management of third grade texts. That that's not a regulatory issue, right? I, mean, I get all, it. This is a clever, way, it's a clever way to talk are, about this because you're not trying to get companies to do something; you're trying to get them to stop doing something, right? Which is introducing politics into this, but it's an, it's not actually corporate welfare. It's one. It's just the largest of hundreds of autonomous. You're, you're, zones, you're trying to get and you're getting to stay yeah, in their lane. They, they, yes, but you've well, also taken municipal services off off the hands of Orange County, so it's look, not like I, I, there's there's benefits for no there are costs. Here that, I'm that not are probably, saying there aren't that are probably not, not going to happen but when this, when this is, goes into effect in 2023. But what DeSantis did with Disney is actually represents only one half of the of the NatCon formulation. Um, not that I'm giving NatCon's credit for any of this. I'm not that I'm saying that that he's in there, you know, he's 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 controlled by them or anything like that. I'm, I'm just. The other the half that 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 represents is um, punish your enemies. The other half is reward your friends. And, mm. and that is that is what I potentially where where we could see a different kind of regulation. I'm not saying right. we will. And I, I should also right. say to, to DeSantis's credit, he talks in the rhetoric of freedom constantly. Right. That is his big pitch. Right. Florida is the it's the free state of Florida. Right. Yeah. But so uh, the, other, the other side of it, what you're saying that 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 other part of it is really just a way of addressing a problem that people before we had the new NatCons were talking about for a long time. I mean, it was like, what do you do about the people in the, you know, in Ohio who haven't reaped the benefits of globalization and are seeing, you know, and haven't adjusted uh, along with the, you know, rest of the economy from an industrial based economy to more of a kind of services and information based economy. And everyone has been talking about this now for like 40 years. Ross Dothad and, and Rayon Salam wrote that book like 15 years ago about this. You know, this was Clinton and Bob Wright's big idea in the 90s of building a bridge to the 20th century. Everybody was trying to figure out what do you do with this population of people who can no longer go to work, you know, in the auto plant factory because we're, we're, we're going to be in a new phase and our economy is going to be a lot different. And the NatCons are just the latest group of people to come up with a way to talk about it. And mainly they express it as a grievance. These people have been left behind. And this is why you can't trust the people who've been running the country because they've allowed this problem to fester. And now we have fentanyl everywhere. But that's basically we've all been worried about this and mm -hmm. to some extent for like 40 years. Right. Yeah. I mean, look, you know, the central the central this is where you can't manage the economy comes in, which is, right. you know, you're not going to bring back the, the factory economy. Yeah. Um, the, the the structure of the American economy from 1947 to 1970 was was built on the fact that the other industrial the major industrial powers of the world at the time had been decimated physically and their physical plants had been decimated by war which meant that America in the 1950s uh produce 60% of all industrial production on the planet earth came from within the continental United States. That is a circumstance. And then we created all these institutions and these, 
facts on the ground and things that were by definition going to be temporary, but we just, no one ever thinks that. You don't think, okay, well, Japan's going to rebuild, Germany's going to rebuild, the EU, you know, the EC is going to is going to come back charging, and then there are going to be these other countries on the planet that are going to rise and take advantage of the same ideas that led us to become the most financially successful. I just want to know where the intellectual energy comes from for some sort of a reinvigorated market consensus. On the right, there's this reinterpretation now of conservatism among intellectuals because intellectual ideas have power and authority and we should, small as they are, we should focus on them. Um, And it just re-envision, reinterprets conservatism as being Kirk and Kirk alone. Um, you know, thick attachments to institutions that, you know, necessitate a state that is not so small that it cannot affect the kind of policies that we want to see affected and implement and and shape and guide public behavior that the kind of uh, fusionist conservatism is really out of out of favor right now. It's not in a fashion. And I don't know where the fashion comes from again for a market consensus. Yeah, but the problem with the Russell Kirk thick institutions thing is that they hate institutions too. <laughs> the NatCon's the only institution that I think that, you know, Saurabh and Vermeule uh, are I'm not even really thinking of. about them, but, you know, they're, they are leading the, lights on this sort of yeah. thing. What institution are they supportive of? The Vatican. That's what they're <laughs> supportive of. And what's the Vatican doing today? Pope Francis is in Canada on an apology tour, apologizing for the treatment of indigenous kids in orphanages and schools so i'm sure they love that so where are they this is what they want i I, in all due respect and i don't want to be in a position because i'm not on their side but i think they would express it slightly differently what they would say is you know maybe 30 years ago i really did believe in these institutions but because conservatives were so feckless and weak they allowed for these hyper identity you know gender theorist progressives to take them over and therefore we need to think more creatively, more radically, and have less attachment to all of these institutions, including the military, believe it or not, because, you know, the the progressive socialists have, have, have warmed their way in and, you know, they've rotted them out. And to a certain extent, that is appealing, I think, to us on the more traditional conservative side. Right, John? I mean, I don't know. I mean, of course it's appealing, but that's yes. not, but but, again, but I'm saying that's where all, they're yeah. coming from. They're not coming from like, oh, I've I've grown up and become Rousseau that, you know, or whatever. They, 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 yeah. they become anarchists. They 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 just think that we haven't been able to defend the actual institutions. We haven't I stopped the decay. I don't know. They seem much more dedicated to saying that the Enlightenment was bad. I mean, they have two faces, one of which is drag queen story hour is bad. And then the other cat, the other face is that John Locke is responsible for drag queen story hour. And I'm sorry, but, but you no, know, OK, again, I don't want to I, I don't want to okay. defend them. But I what they're saying, saying, they're not you're, saying you're John being, Locke is, you're a better defender and exponent of their view than they are. If that's what you th- where no, think, where I think what from. they would say is John Locke alone or it was is not up to the task of this particular thing. He didn't he couldn't have foreseen what would happen when you get a bunch of these kind of postmodern types, uh, you know, Foucault followers uh, taking over these institutions. That's what I think that they really are. That's what I think obsesses them. It's that what has become with the new elites, the new elites are, are like, you know, they're, they're driving us off a cliff. What do we do about it? And just being, you know, like David French and saying, we're going to defend the principle that everybody has a right, yada, yada, yada. 
is not enough. And if that's your worldview, if you're disoriented, but, but not by my worldview, but that's I think but, but if that is yeah. your view, if you find everything disorienting, then the disaggregating force of commerce is an enemy. Mm, yeah, that's but true. you can see Noah where they're coming from in the sense. Of that, course I can. Of course I can. Yeah, because it's right. because it's it's not just it's not just Kirk. It's Frank Meyer. I mean, it's you can't you can't be selective about your conservatism that way because that just that's dishonest first of mm. all and it leads you to a dishonest or and not not dishonest intentionally but a misapprehension of conservative intellectual history and ideas and philosophy and practice all i got to say is yoram hazoni thinks that john locke wanted there to be drag queen story hour so don't don't right. don't i'm not going to yeah that's that's fine. very much that's very much a feature <laughs> that that there was deliberate evil being done to you know society that has now come to fruition it's the long march this is the long 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 march through the institutions right that is happening here <laughs> um, anyway uh this got to a very interesting place i don't think any of us thought it was going to get to so uh that was fun and uh we could always count on eli to bring the fun and Eli tell everybody what's coming up on the re-education podcast. We've got a good Russia episode coming up and Fred Kagan is going to be my guest who is really worth listening to, but go back. We have, I've now done 25 episodes. Uh, it's a little different than the commentary podcast, which of course is terrific, but I do a kind of, um, I don't know, an audio essay at the beginning. And then I have a one-on-one. -on -one. We usually, we, we talk about a theme and you can listen to Noah Rothman on the, his book, The New Puritans, which I think was a great episode. Um, I really like um, the one that I did last week with Ari Lamb, who I think is a sponsor of the show with his Good Faith Effort podcast. We talk about uh, the direction of history and whether it's a moral arc of the universe or just a big circle, which I think is a, is a, is a, is a really fun and cool episode. And we talk about the idea that, you know, why are, why are so many young Americans in particular so miserable when life has kind of gotten better uh, in a lot of ways, if you take the long view. Um, and, uh, you know, there's a whole bunch of them. All of the commentary regulars have been on it. So listen to the J-Pod one, which is one of our first ones on Neocons. Listen to Cry Bully episode with Abe Greenwald, which was a great one. And of course, Christine Rosen came on um, to, uh, God, I forget the topic, but she was, that was a very good episode as well. <laughs> I think we talked about the That's sociopaths. The problem. Once, once you get into, once you get into yeah. the double digits on the podcast, the ability to remember what you said at any given time, people said, people have said to me, I guess to all of us, like, you made a really good point the other day about something. I'm like, I did really. <laughs> what was that? I have no idea. Yeah. Anyway, it's, 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 it's beginning to begin. Yeah, this sorry. the other uh, day. I, was, I, I tweeted something about a conversation I was having and somebody goes, what podcast was that on? <laughs> wasn't a podcast. It's just talking to somebody. What, what happens you talk to, to people to you once talk in to a while without a microphone? What are you? A, what are you, a goon? I know it should be. Every conversation should have some. What are you, what are you like sitting with a Victrola? <laughs> Anyway, anyway, it's a it's a fun thing, and it's starting to get an audience. I'm told by uh, the company Nebulous that um it's growing really well. It's we're we're up to about uh, three thousand downloads an episode. So let's keep the trend going, guys. It's gonna right. it's a good it's a good it's a good podcast. The Reeducation Podcast. Eli Lake, thanks for joining us. Thank Christine, you, Christine. I hope we'll be back tomorrow. And for Noah and Abe, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.